but it's, it's not too loud. It's fine for me, yeah. Is it good. okay for you guys? Okay. Okay. Yeah, I feel good too. All right. I feel great. <laughs> um, uh, hello, hello, my fe- my fellow brothers in Bernard. <laughs> do you do you want to do some election interference today with me? I can't do a Russian accent. I tried. I even tried practicing it a little bit. But um, big thanks to Putin for yeah. getting our getting our absolute boy. Um, yeah, so you see what happens when you get uh, Putin in the mix. You just like you know fifty percent uh vote totals coming in for bernie yeah that's yeah, that's a difference that and i guess like maybe having a more diverse voter base that uh you know, votes for bernie contra whatever they say in uh social in a uh on cable news yeah three for three yeah ben i i am feeling the uh the enthusiasm and excitement that chris was feeling after new hampshire when yes, i was not yes, feeling yes, enthusiastic yes, yes, yes. uh yeah Last night, I definitely, I was definitely feeling the energy. All those push-ups were paying off. Yeah, yeah, it's all that. It was all you and your push-ups. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I, I, my one of the highlights is watching uh, MSNBC talking heads try to square their narrative that only white bros vote for Bernie, and the fact that now the most diverse state so far has given him by far the biggest turnout. And it and and when you break it down by race, it's just like fifty percent Sanders. Yeah, uh, it's and it's just he it just takes it away. And, and it's like, how, and they they just they can't do anything with it. They can't. They don't know how to did how you, to uh, keep that narrative going. Did you listen to the MSNBC anchor that was like reporting live from some caucus room? And she was talking about how um, all of the minority vote was lined up along Sanders, but she like had this like really dramatic sigh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. These again are people who work on the strip within two and a half miles of the Bellagio, largely people of color of those. The majority are Latino and they are clearly, at least from eyeballing it, strongly in favor of Bernie Sanders with Joe Biden coming in second. Watching MSNBC people just like watching their brains melt is by far the most satisfying thing about this stupid fucking election process. It really makes me think, though, like, at what granularity are they getting their directive? Do they just know inherently from the method acting that they've been doing for so long that, like, it's important to sigh when when uh, Sanders is winning? <laughs> or was that, like, something being fed to them? Like, their editor was like, all right, now remember to let out a pregnant, incredibly audible <laughs> sigh when you declare that uh, Bernie Sanders is the runaway uh, victor of I this I don't think they even have to act because I think that's how they feel. I think that they're being like at least somewhat authentic when she is very upset about minorities going for Bernie. Like that is probably not performative. She probably is upset. I mean, at the very least, you see that and you're like, ah, I looked stupid for a week and a Mm -hmm. half. Like, I don't think that 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 they're that uh, introspective. So, yeah. that, but at the very least, I like they should be sighing because it's clear that they were lying this whole time, and that should be embarrassing to them if they had any sort of like you know shame. Uh, shame, yeah, yeah. The word, the word, operative word there is shame. Yeah. But I, they don't, of, so that might not be it. I but. saw people calling for Chris Matthews to um, yeah, resign, <laughs> bitch. resign. I guess, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Be uh, be shot in Central Park. No, um, 
Yeah, for saying, for comparing Bernie Sanders' Nevada win to uh, Hitler conquering France in World War II. <laughs> I just love really that he can't, he can't make any uh, metaphor or analysis um, that uh, uh, beyond like 1958, <laughs> or I guess like 1970 or something, you know, or he just... Like, me and Tip O'Neill, eh? and it was just like, why? What is it like? Can you please like say something since I've been alive? Like, just compare today to anything in the last thirty years. Yeah, man? yeah. I remember both red scares, and they were excellent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Joy Ann Reed coming around. She's pulling a Peter Dow. She's getting woke to the to the burn. Um, she has done nothing but like shit on. Sanders and his supporters yeah. for five years now. That is all she has done. And now that he's now that she sees that like black people are in fact having Bernie as are Latinx people. <laughs> um, every time a fucking talking head says Latinx, it makes me cringe. But what, what's happening right now is the the warp core of neoliberal hegemony is is breaching. Right. And Joanne Reed has to like do a barrel roll, like roll on the floor just to get under the bulkhead as it closes before they eject the warp core. That's basically Joanne Reed right now. Okay. And, I see. Right. And, if, and and she knows it. And if she can That's get That's what Jordy out, pulled, right? Yes. That, yeah. 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 And, and, Jordy and, LaForge for those right. at home who, who don't know all the Star Trek cast by their first name. But. Yeah. And then she just like has to get out right before the bulkhead closes because this is it you know like pretty much after south carolina if he's like pulling away with it you can't you have to at least change your your narrative up or pick a, or pick a different side and i think she can either she she's like she's a savvy operator if anything else i think she recognizes that like there's probably a bigger audience now to be had getting on board you know get on board yeah yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see everybody who has been doing everything that they can to forestall this or, you know, straight up stop it from happening to be like, oh, actually, no, I'm, I've am i been with the people the whole time. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. You know, but I guess... Yeah, sa- savvy, opera- savvy Operator <laughs> is probably uh, giving her way too much credit. You know, she's a cynical, like, TV personality, right? And it's yeah. like, if, if you see that there's actually a real audience for being pro Sanders and you get to be the first major uh, MSNBC character talking head that is pro Sanders, right? I mean, Chris Hayes a... has been seemingly pro Sanders yeah, all along. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. He does have to pull back uh, Chris Matthews and his more darker pull moments. Pull him off the brink, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> pull him down from, from the edge. He's like erecting a scaffold for himself. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't know why Bernie's making me do this. <laughs> like, I have a gallows making it. sorry Brittany. no it's fine it's fine um i really again very triggering for me you guys are incredibly disrespectful of my triggers (laughs) knowing that chris matthews is one of them um should we talk about the debate at all because the debate was kind of fire actually yeah absolutely like chris did you see it at all yeah i did yeah i I watched um probably about 60 percent of it yeah it was a um you know, if Warren had been, like, going full, you know, like, guns blazing like she did last time, she'd probably be doing a hell of a lot better. Probably. Yeah. I'd probably, if, if like, those were the guns she was bringing out. Yeah. Because she was kind of like that in the beginning, right? Like, she was a bit of a firebrand. She did sound very progressive yeah. early in the campaign. 
And I feel like the last debate, she kind of brought some of that back. And I think like a lot, I think she would have definitely kept more of her early support and would probably be building on it if she'd kept that up. But yeah, she she doesn't appear to ever get a boost in the polls um, when she does well in the debate because they always say she did well in the debate. And then it never... Even when she sucked. Even there when she sucked, yeah. There where she yeah. didn't do very well. And every fucking pundit is falling over themselves to talk about how incredible Elizabeth Warren's performance was. Yeah. yeah. And what did she come in in Nevada so far? Like, fourth, maybe? Fourth, I yeah. think. Yeah, so it's like, it's still not paying dividends. And it's probably too late now, but... Yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, I have sympathy for both her and her supporters in the sense that being in the situation that they're in, it's not particularly fun or easy. Like... She tried to, you know, meek out a uh, foothold in a very narrow space, which was essentially from a policy standpoint, she adopted Bernie's platform with like a couple, you know, variations. Like she, you know, got into specifics about how she was going to do various tax incentives or whatever, but essentially very, very similar. Uh, But she at the same time recognized that there were a lot of people within, you know, the Democratic electorate that were turned off by certain aspects of Bernie Sanders' personality. And I think that she, like, tried to get on the other side of that. But I think that that was a political miscalculation because, like, people like someone who's pissed off and going to not give anybody any slack, especially when it's 2020 and one of the richest human beings that has ever lived on this earth is trying to like buy the election like she right. kicked bloomberg's ass like thoroughly, thoroughly. yeah she did like, yeah. thoroughly and you know like and i was like damn like i really want warren on our team know, <laughs> like, please drop out please support sanders because like you rule <laughs> and right now you're running against and losing to by about like a one to four margin the support of the best chance that working class people have ever had to have somebody who's going to champion their you know uh, material interests at the bully pulpit and like she's not gonna win yeah she's not gonna win another way that i think because i think you hit on something really important with the personality thing that is like so much of why um warren stands like think that she is such a like a significantly better choice than bernie so much of it comes down to personality i think and one thing that she does which is very classic of politicians everybody else in the race is doing it too is talk so much about herself. And like we talked in a bonus episode about this like notion of um, rhetorical persuasion that comes out of like 20th century rhetoric, which is the idea of identification, the, the way that you get people to, you know, agree with you to, to change their minds is to make them feel personally like connected to you. This was the, you know, my father was a farmer just like you and blah, blah, blah. But Bernie doesn't do any of that fucking shit. He does not talk about himself. It is, it's literally the like founding notion of his campaign is that it's not about him. It's about the people who he, you know, wants to represent. Great slogan, by the way. Not great slogan. If you're, if you're going for the populist lane and you choose not me, us as your slogan, like that's good sloganeering. It, it's, it's yes, we can levels of good sloganeering. Um, and that's, I think it goes to sort of prove the lie that like people don't, when, when things are dire the way they are now, it's not about who you want to have a beer with. Like, although I would kill to have a beer with Bernie Sanders. And I don't understand everybody <laughs> thinking he's like cranky and mean. I think he seems like an absolute pleasure and a joy. Um, but yeah, like it just goes to show that that notion of like politics as, you know, being about uh, the the person. And like, I don't give a fuck about Elizabeth Warren's uh, mama and daddy, which every time she says Nails that, on a chalkboard. I, yeah, I cringe every time she says mama and daddy. 
Is that part of her tilting toward millennials vote? <laughs> it's supposed to be a child. <laughs> so it be, they have like a, a, a arrested development brain. Like, yeah, I, I, I just wish that, uh, yeah, she had been doing this the whole time. And like, the, at least we could have like, the whole conversation could be about like, what, which two progressive candidates we uh, have to choose from. But instead, it really just seemed like her campaign got infected by dropouts from Beto and the Harris campaign or something and, and she just started like trying to find this like center lane that never existed right. you know and uh, uh, and and got lost because no one cares about that no one needed that and uh, it, 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 it's like like what got her popular right it's like these like viral YouTube videos of her chewing out Jamie Dimon and like yeah. other yeah, like bankers and stuff 2009 2010 and 2011 yeah. Warren is what is still retweeted today because yeah that that's when... the only part that's interesting it's her, it's her best stuff is her early work you know like her, her, <laughs> her early albums are better and now it's just like all this like warmed over crap it's like you know it's cover records I don't know it's like it's bad well you know like I like I said, I, I feel a sympathy for both her and her supporters because she is, you know, running against Bernie Sanders, like with pretty much a very similar, you know, platform. And it's just this is the year of raging against the machine, and Bernie Sanders is going to get the primary, or at least is gonna get way more support than Warren as far as any polls, you know, indicate. And so the question is like, why are you running against this moment you know like yeah you know i mean in some ways i think it like look in a regular normal world of politics we would be glad that there are two progressives in the race right even more you, you know more um opportunities to pull the sort of overton window further to the left for the democrats right like that should be great that we have two really strong progressive like let's yeah, pretend that popular. yeah pretend no. that liz was still a strong progressive or she's stronger she's, than fucking uh steyer oh yeah absolutely and that she is not uh, a billionaire yeah and so maybe that's part of why it's troublesome for her to remain in the race is that it's just such a crowded race generally speaking that any dropout is is welcomed right like yeah. anybody dropping out is good well and this is an example of like why i i think the uh to talk about the toxic culture of of uh elizabeth warren's campaign here for a minute you know <laughs> um and they haven't i don't think her her like diehard supporters held her feet to the fire like they made excuses for her like if bernie started going to the center like people would be livid. They oh my really, god! Yeah. yeah, I mean, like even when she, he he said stuff about um, uh, what was it? Uh, uh, what was it? I think it was about yeah, it was about Bolivia. And, yeah, and he said some like milquetoast stuff about Evo Morales, and he kind of distanced himself a little bit. And like people were mad, and they like said shit about it. And uh, he's moved to the he's moved to the left uh, since 2016 on a ton of on stuff. a ton of stuff. And it was because people uh, pushed him for it. Yeah. And, like, even today, like, there's people, like, jumping the stage, like, that, uh, that, um, there were, like, a couple of, like, vegan activists that jumped the stage while he was talking. Oh, yeah, dude. They need to get Bernie some better security. Yeah, that That, was scary, actually. Yeah, that was crazy. Those people, like, sauntered right up to him. Right up to him and (laughs) grabbed the mic. Nobody stopped them. Yeah. But the point is that, like, a lot of Warren supporters will just defend her as like, oh no, well she, the plan is much more complicated and the, what she's saying right now is to attract, you know, like the, the Midwestern vote and like this 12D chess bullshit. And it's like, no, you, you like, she would have been doing better 
if she did what made her popular in the first place, which is chewing out billionaires. Yeah. yeah. And that is exactly what happened. And I, and that, you know, in this last debate, and I, I just, she should have been doing that the whole time. It probably would have worked out better for her if Bloomberg had jumped in at the first debate and like had qualified for it. You know what I mean? Because like that's her bread and butter. Yeah. It's like, you know, but, the, but there were two other billionaires that she could have been yelling at. Yeah. You know, and she didn't. Yeah, it's true. They should Steyer and, uh, and, uh, well, maybe he's not a billionaire, but he's like, you know, the, the buff one. Which one? Delaney. Yo, right. that guy, that guy's uh, workout videos are funny because that dude is incredibly strong, but like doesn't know what form means. Like he's just his, so his form is being it. rich and being able to afford whatever machine <laughs> uh, he can, and then like physical therapy when he screws screws up his back. Yeah, yeah, those deadlifts are. When I was into weightlifting, I wouldn't even do deadlifts because it freaked me out so badly. How like perfect your form has to be, so yeah. you don't fuck your. And Delaney's just out here like all hunched over and oh, yeah, lifting with his back. Yeah, don't, doesn't matter. That dude is like juggernaut. <laughs> That would be cool if Liz Warren uh, went after Delaney of his form and <laughs> working oh, out. Oh, man. I might have to switch my my uh, my allegiances if she went after Delaney's form. That would rule. Oh. I have a workout plan for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I do. It, Chris, earlier you said like that you feel sympathy for Liz and her supporters. I don't feel any sympathy for Liz personally because I think she's a fucking snake. But uh, But I do feel a lot of sympathy for her supporters because it's just they're like they i think most of them really do like sincerely want a progressive agenda and they're just you know i feel like they're getting duped by a fucking republican and you know another thing like all of this fear-mongering around bernie being too left-wing to win in a general and yet he he captured more of the moderate democrat voters in nevada than any other candidate Medicare like, for he, all is the, is he captured the almost choice. half of them yeah like yeah. it's just well because like 60 percent of people are for medicare for all in every state that has already voted and it's a popular position and the idea of the moderate voter isn't uh accurate you know uh, uh, people have wildly divergent views that we would characterize as liberal and conservative around everything you know yeah, you, you, you could be like really really pro-gun and really really pro-choice and really really into medicare for all and that but also don't raise my taxes like people have all sorts of co- seemingly contradictory or like or off the board views and uh it really comes down to you know like what which ones of those uh you know like make you get out to vote you know yeah. right. the centrist or moderate voter is the glue within the democratic party that holds together the people that are trying to serve the billionaires and the people who uh at least ostensibly are saying they're trying to serve the you know the day laborers and working class and that like ultimately the the, the moderate voter is the one that's saying we have to have both can't we have both of course we can have both we need to have both right and like you know the 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 bloombergs of the world are like no we just care about the rich you can't have soda or guns i'm gonna make the whole (laughs) nation behave and then you have you know the the bernie and the liz people are like actually like the rich are you know running the show and we need to stand up against them if we're gonna have any chance at getting any material gains and the moderate voters like can't we have unity? Yeah, which is like, can't we can't we unite these 
completely antagonistic uh, material. Uh, you know, Sir, I don't yeah. even think I don't think that most people who would call themselves moderate Dems, at least, do think that the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party should exist. I think that they they think that it's just too radical and has no place in American politics. Coming together is those people shutting up. So that the adults in the room exactly can, can yes, have that's what coming a, together a means moderate, for her. a so-called moderate conversation, which is really just like a steady march to the right. I've said this before: the moderate voters are just Republicans who don't like how loud the dog whistle of the Republican Party is. Like they just wish they would be more quietly racist. Yeah, they don't want to chant "build the wall." They just want the wall to be built, but like as economically efficiently as possible right. to be run to like maintain, you know. The, the, the castle doctrine of rich states versus poor states. Yeah. Like they don't think rich, poor people should starve, but they don't think they should be treated with any dignity. Like that's, I think the moderate Dem. Did you guys hear that uh, audio of Bloomberg talking about how he wants to increase co-pays and Medicaid costs for people so that people will only use services when they absolutely need it? Jesus. As if people aren't already I, fucking you know, doing I just that. Mi- I just miss my doctor. I'd like to go see her. You know, like, I don't really, there's nothing wrong with me. I just really, like, want to use some medical services. Our doctor is quite attractive, though. <laughs> See, you're just going to use all If I had Medicare for all, I might, yeah, I might just be hitting up our doctor all the time. What up? I have a, like, what up, Dr. I have, Cruz? I have, a, I have a pain in my neck. Could you just, <laughs> yeah? No, I mean, like, this is, I think. I don't think that any of this is new, though, right? He's like, what, that, like, Phil Oaks song, like, Love Me, I'm a Liberal, where he's, you know, he's, like, talking about busing. Like, part of the lyrics of the song are, like, a, um, about busing. And, you know, it, it's a, you know, a, up in New England, you're, like, tut-tutting and, and sh- wagging your finger at people in the South who don't want to bus their kids. But, you know, like, oh, but also, by the way, don't uh, start busing up here like right. you, know, you know it's it's it is all like all of that liberal hypocrisy that it really exists and it, it exists in both directions and it, it and it's uh it's exactly what michael bloomberg uh like embodies is this like control the dumb uh poor people who don't who can you know because they can't uh take care of themselves and for us we'll get some tax cuts it's like that's exactly what a liberal is yeah i think in our echo chamber the idea that they're that there are people who consider themselves left of center who do think that we should just be ruled by benevolent oligarchs who have our best interests in mind. Like, like I think for a lot of us, yeah, exactly. Like we think like, it's hard for us to imagine that those people exist, but they're, but like they are arguably maybe even the majority of people self-identified Democrats. Well, if you believe in meritocracy, it means that other people's opinions on things like policy are more important than yours. Because they've earned it. And their earning is based on their subjective value to a bunch of very powerful institutions, you know? And, like, who yeah. gets accredited and who doesn't. And so, like, the idea of being like, oh, no, fuck that. I think working people can figure out how to, like, organize a society that, like, you know, serves all on their own is a existential affront to the institutions of power and privilege that exist. And so everybody who's like repping those systems as like the way that they got in or how they want to, you know, maintain gatekeeping like attitude as to like what is like, you know, a uh, proper and informed opinion about like what we should do with a society is going to like fall away. Yeah, I mean, and and like right now, a really popular gatekeeping 
like rhetorical strategy for people who are opposed to any progressive change within the party is that like these, you know, like progressives like Bernie Sanders, they haven't gotten anything done. And that's like a, a, a type of gatekeeping that I think belies this, no, like this idea of a meritocratic like, governance system, because like getting getting something done in a broken Congress should not be a measure of like absolute success. Like if yeah. you have a hard time getting things done through this con- through this like totally broken congressional system that we have, that just means that the things that you're trying to get done are probably really good. And like we don't have a like functioning government that can allow anybody to accomplish those things. It also uh, uh, privileges incrementalism, right? Absolutely, because yeah. you're like, oh yeah, well, oh you wanted Medicare for all in the '80s. Well, like why didn't you just like continually try to expand it, like like every for like like a little six month increases every year or something? I, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a dumb metaphor, but you know, like, because also Bernie Sanders has done things about trying to get drug prices lowered for decades. And he's expanded you know? healthcare through like community healthcare services to hundreds of thousands of people. Um, he had more bipartisan amendments passed when he was in the house than any other rep. The like, amendment King. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. but none of those things get to be counted as accomplishments because you have people like Amy Klobuchar sitting up there screaming about how how many uh, bills she's gotten passed as the head of the bill. And it's like, yeah, they're all fucking milquetoast policies. Of course, it's easy to get shit through when when it's, you know, not like doesn't substantively change anything. I mean, if someone's just like talking qu- like quantitatively about how much shit they've done, they're like, yeah, but what is the character and nature of those things? Are they things that I like? Are they things that hurt me? You know, like, like all like that. None of that gets talked about with Amy Klobuchar, because probably a lot of the stuff that she's done is, you know, not uh, particularly great. You know, yeah. it would definitely not be popular right now. Yeah. You know, uh I, I, I have we seen um uh Bloomberg's uh Twitter army bots are getting uh, kicked off the platform? Yeah, so do you know any I didn't read I just saw kind of the headline, but I don't I don't really know like what were they doing? Were they just uh, uh, I believe that they were coordinating, uh, like what they were saying, uh-huh. uh huh, which a little too closely through, through DMs. So are these people or bots? I'm confused. Uh, yeah, Twitter's suspending uh, 70 Bloomberg accounts. They are real people. They're what uh, the campaign calls deputy field organizers. They get paid 2500 bucks a month. They're, Jesus. Uh, they're, uh, we are uh, on the wrong fucking right? side, you I guys. Know. Right, <laughs> uh, it, 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 there's hundreds of them. They're temporary employees, and they get um, uh, language sent to them by the campaign that they're allowed to use uh, whenever they want. Uh, but a lot of it, they're just like copying and pasting. And so that's uh, against uh, Twitter's rules against platform manipulation and spamming. Oh, is, is yeah. you, you can't CNP? You can't coordinate, yeah. uh, I guess, like campaigns that way. Oh. Yeah, you can't, you can't just like have a bunch of people saying the exact same thing over They're like, over you over can't again. just pay humans to be a bot farm. Right, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. um, a, I guess it's like a distinction without a difference, right? If humans are copying and pasting it instead of like a bunch of virtual huh. machines, I don't know. I really feel like this is an untested, um, like it, 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 Bloomberg is a great experiment to see exactly how much of the democratic process you can buy, like realistically. Because we don't really He's know, right? Money. This yeah. is the first sort of campaign of this type that is just going to do nothing except for buy influence among the voter base. Yeah. And we don't really, like, we haven't seen how 
well that works yet. So because humans are such visual learners, have you guys ever seen the graph, the infographic of um, Bloomberg and the rest of the presidential candidates uh, net worth compared to each other? Like on a I've seen a scale? ton of them, but yeah. Yeah. It's like Bloomberg is, I think what, like, um, like 10 or 12 times bigger than Trump who, and everyone else is invisible. Yeah. It's like, it's like those, um, scaled depictions of the, uh, the solar system where it's like, (laughs) (laughs) like the moon looks really far away until you get to Saturn. Um, yeah, that is, I think there's somebody, there's something that was like, if you earned $7,000 an hour for every hour since Jesus was born, you wouldn't have nearly as much money as Bloomberg. Yeah. Like there are all of these just like cr- totally crazy yeah. attempts to use numbers to represent this wealth when like you just can't like the, the, the <laughs> mind can't wrap itself around that type of wealth. Yeah. So uh, Bezos reportedly made like $230,000 a minute, even while he slept. Um, and I think that puts Bloomberg as Bloomberg is only 60 or 80 billion rather. Uh, like a hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars a minute, or something. Like and these that. are people. And these are the people that every single Democratic nominee thinks are perfectly fine to exist, except yeah. for exactly one. Yeah, like it's so. Including the poorest of them, which is Buttigieg. Oh, he's so poor, D- David. You were saying Chasen has like six million dollars yeah, or something, I, I right? I can't verify that. I can't find it. I heard someone saying that maybe it was all a lie. It was yeah, fake but, news, but but it's still like they they have well more money look than at their dog's twitter do. if you look at their yeah. dog's twitter account they have a, they have like a baby grand <laughs> that piano house in the is gorgeous there's yeah. no way you're buying that house on like a mere six figure you know like like hundred thousand dollars some six figure his total net worth is six figure right no they, they, they make yeah. they, 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 they make uh uh, uh th- six figures a year yeah. all right fair but but it, still though it's just like it's it, it's very disingenuous to make him seem like like the poorest uh yeah like some working stage. class it's, midwestern yeah, it's, it's fucking bullshit yeah uh um it, so uh getting back to uh bloomberg getting um banned from from a uh, uh twitter uh you know like some of those accounts are perma banned like they're not going to get to come back I, I don't know what the difference is between getting perma banned and and having a a temporary suspension. I don't know what the different what those accounts did differently, but Facebook is also changing how they respond to uh, Bloomberg's campaign. The social. This is from the Los Angeles Times. The social network views the campaign's activity as falling under its rules for branded content, not the rules against. I love, 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 love this term. Quote: coordinated inauthentic behavior (laughs) devised largely in response to Russian election meddling. So he's not a Russian election meddler. He's an American election meddler, but that's not a coordinated inauthentic behavior. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So it's um, like all of these, uh, it's really interesting to watch all of these social media accounts, like try to figure out what is, authentic behavior right he's like if if you built a a a if you built a platform that is explicitly pay to play right like you've Uh, sorry i'm just trying to wonder if like figuring out what is authentic behavior it's like telling mike pence what that pussy do (laughs) is that that authentic behavior or is that is that bot triggering uh behavior yeah these are the questions of our times but like so like you have these platforms that are designed to be pay to play right you can the more money you give us the more visibility you will have on our platform yeah 
but the problem is that the way authenticity works is that that transaction makes you inauthentic, right? So all of these campaigns have to find a way to make it seem like they're not using that mode of pay to play where you just buy an ad. You have to have what seems to be, be actual human people loving you, right? But you can't do that unless you're actually lovable, like Bernie Sanders. And so you're paying people individually, but they don't actually care about you. So you also have to give them the language that you want to push out there because you don't actually have a strategy or a platform to speak of. And so they just copy and paste it because they're just in it for the money. And you become and they register as inauthentic again because it is inauthentic. So I'm not like saying like they're good at arbiters of authenticity or inauthentic inauthenticity but i just love that all of them these companies and these billionaire candidates are stuck like trying to institutionally like say that they are authentic while just like while also just like constantly (laughs) falling on like stepping on this rake (laughs) and and this is what twitter's pissed off about right is that bloomberg has cut out the middleman being twitter like you're the, the yeah he's paying people directly yeah the that's transaction what, that's probably why they're that's actually exactly why yeah, no, it's, that's a very that's good point absolutely why is yeah. because Twitter does not want you buying Twitter accounts Twitter wants you buying promoted like tweets that's what that's their bread yeah, and butter that's how they make yeah. their money, you can't you know? just p- pay people to yeah. say the same just, thing over and over again you can't just pay fuck Jerry ten million dollars to post a uh, screenshot from a uh, DM discussing about how you want to put a graphic that says when you're the cool candidate and you're wearing like whack ass gear and him saying uh, or they saying uh, that'll be a billion dollars yeah. <laughs> like, yeah you know that's authentic Right. It's, you know, I mean, the question of authenticity is sort of, I think, one of the more interesting academic subjects that exists right now. But like, there's just so it makes me wish I was still a writer, because there's just so much interesting shit to say about authenticity in this in this uh, presidential race. Because you have like candidates who like the reason that Trump did well, the reason that Bernie is doing well, the reason that Warren even like still has a pretty solid, like devoted fan base is because of this, this hunger for authenticity. And it's um, also why she's, it's an explanation for why she's failing, right? Is that yeah. she's not coming across as authentic yeah. uh, to too many people. And why Bloomberg be will be absolutely reviled by yeah. anybody who's actually, the only voters that he will get are, is just people who watch TV and vote based on that. Or or people that uh, only interact with him through the these like uh, inauthentic uh, contrived media marketing strategies, right? Because if you like, if you just like really like the weird fuck Jerry irony posts that are you know, designed to make him seem affable or something, you know, like then you're not actually hearing him speak. Which is why I was pretty excited when they let him into the next debate, because what happened is exactly what I thought would happen, is people would meet Mike Bloomberg, and they'd be like, oh, this guy fucking blows. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, good, yes, please, put him in front of the camera all the time. It also works... Thank you, Warren. Constantly ask him what he thinks about things. I think it also really... Everyone will hate him. It helps Bernie a lot, too, because it takes a lot of the heat off of him. If everybody's busy attacking Bloomberg... It's a little, I think, harder for them to turn it, you know, other than like Pete is really the only one who's still really sticking to an anti-Bernie message yeah. for the most part, which his his speech after the caucus was, I thought, <laughs> absolutely repugnant. I thought it was really, you know, people 
pundits always talk about going negative as if it's this really dangerous thing for a campaign to do, which David and I have talked off mic that we don't really think that anybody gives a shit about who goes negative first and all this stuff that pundits try to tell us we should care about. Nobody really gives a shit. Nobody remembers who went negative first. But I do think that Pete... Uh, Pete's very anti-Bernie rhetoric is going to come back and bite him in the ass because people just don't like that kind of ugliness. They I, don't. I also like to set the stage that Buttigieg was giving his concession speech in Nevada in like what looked to be a basement. Yeah. He looked like he was in the basement. with It was like a bunch of folding chairs. The, the amount of people that were behind Sanders at his uh, victory speech were like in that that alone was like all of the people in the uh, in the Steve. whole room in Pete's in Pete's basement, <laughs> yeah, 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 and it was it was just a, or it was at least like a windowless room, which if it's above ground is even weirder. And he put the only two black people in the room, behind, yeah, right, right behind, behind him, him, which is what he did at his. He did, uh, yeah, he yeah. just keeps doing that, so and it, and it was just like so weird. It seemed like they fucked with the audio a little bit so that it sounded like a bigger place than it really was. I don't know. There seemed like something about the way, like there was something weird about his audio that just didn't sound like he was in the kind of room that he was in, and uh, yeah, and he was just, he was also doing. His fake deep rat. voice. Yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, Obama impression. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, purpor- it's proportional. The worse he does in the in an election in any sort of contest, the deeper his voice goes. And he's been trying this five o'clock shadow thing. I, th- I think I made this joke in the chat. Yeah. Or maybe it was in another group chat that he's like waking up at three a.m. to shave so that he can have like a fake five o'clock shadow when he speaks. <laughs> um, bearded Buttigieg was trending. Bearded yeah. Buttigieg is hot. If you, if you haven't <laughs> seen the shopped image of pete with a beard it's he's a good looking guy yeah <laughs> the 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 uh, uh the similarities between him and ted cruz way less persist rat. ted cruz also a snack with a beard like he is a way good looking rat. dude with the, yeah <laughs> more zodiac killer I and mean, like they but they both like killing things secretly right uh they're both uh gonna lose uh they both uh kind of won iowa uh and then oh yeah uh, i forgot about that right and then uh we'll eat shit later by the populist candidate did you guys see the last week tonight uh, about um the medicare for all yeah yeah he did a pretty de- pretty decent job i think yeah, yeah. Uh, i wasn't prepared for i like that. john oliver yeah well yeah he, he has, <laughs> i mean he's fine like yeah. he has good research staff apparently yeah he, he puts together a very uh, entertaining program. I appreciate it for a lot of the craft of it. I like, like the he, deep dives. Yeah. It's like one of the things that I, I like to do with the podcast from time to time, especially if I have time, which, by the way, I think we're going to do a Kate Mulvaney mm. Fuck yeah. episode. I'm uh, all about this. Very famous uh, women's labor organizer from Troy. Don't strike. Um, well, don't don't iron when the strike is hot. Don't iron when the strike is hot. No. Yeah. So we'll talk about her. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe here in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Badass. We'll get that together soon. So I think, I think really like, let's move on from this because it is just electoral shit and we're not a, like, we're not a Bernie Sanders podcast, although sort we of. do, talk, we, are, we are a little bit, but. Um, I have Steve Kornacki locked in the basement fed a bunch of meth. <laughs> uh, like, I, did, I do that for nothing. Um, he, he's very thirsty. I think like there is some fear that's warranted of like complacency and these early victories and especially like a massive win like Nevada might make people feel a bit like it's in the bag, but I don't see that happening. And like, if you go, if you're on, if you've done any work with the campaign and you're on the slack, like these motherfuckers are fired up. 
Nobody is feeling like it's time to take a day off. Nobody is feeling like, you know, maybe Bernie doesn't need my three bucks this week. People are on fucking fire and it rules. We taste blood. We taste Chris Matthews' blood. It's exactly, yes, it is. It's like I taste it's, his tears and I taste his blood and I just, I want, I want it all. Yeah. And I just think that's really like says something about it being, um, David, you, you once wrote something about politicians having fans rather yeah. Rather than supporters. And I think you were writing about it specifically with regards to Clinton in the last presidential election. Um, and I think that that's a big difference between fans and supporters and like a brand and a movement is that when you're doing well, you don't rest on your laurels. It like makes you hungry. It makes you hungrier. It makes you want to fight more and do more. And I think that it's a real advantage for the campaign that other campaigns don't have because they have fans and brands. And when you're doing well, cool, I can take a break. But when you're in a movement, no, there are no breaks. There's only working harder. Now that I'm thinking about it, actually, I'm not, I didn't write the thing about Hillary only having fans or trying to turn voters into fans. But what I did write, right, af- after reading that was something about how I thought Warren was, or sorry, <laughs> Freudian slip there. Yeah. I, I thought Hillary was what I called an explainer candidate, where she yeah. replaces policy with describing the problem in more intricate detail and then saying like great impression right and then saying like this has to stop right yeah yeah and uh and and she perfected that and i I, pretty much every candidate other than sanders continues to do that and it's very very pernicious and hard to spot really because you hear them saying things they're like finally someone on that stage in that position is recognizing these these social ills you know it's it is absolutely elizabeth warren saying like she's going to read the names of like dead trans women in the rose garden right it's stuff like that but even then it's like her saying she's going to read those names right but you can just like list off like these sad depressing uh facts or or statistics and then uh say and that needs to end and then like you don't have to have to actually say about any specific policy and people just read that or assume that you're against the things that you just described because you said them in the negative and if you can describe them you can fix them yeah yeah but it, which is just not totally, how it works which is totally warren's brand though right it's like it's because she understands it better yeah. right she's smart I'm like yeah but if yeah, you if don't have the conviction things, to fix it you're not going to fix it if explaining things could fix them we would be living in a communist ut- utopia because fucking leftist academics if they're good at anything they're good at explaining things (laughs) and nobody knows fuck all about how to fix it yeah and criticizing and describing a problem in vivid detail but you're not well well, like fixing it entails the idea of like knowing how you can pull together the conscious attention and agency of like millions of people who are currently feeling at least that they have none and that they are like not engaged in the system yeah and uh yeah, we'll see. That's the work to be done, right? <laughs> Just remember, could have voted, but I didn't. Would have swept, like, a majority of the states in this country in 2016. Yeah. Yep. Like, by far. It wouldn't even be close. Uh, and, uh, and, and those are the actual people that you need to get. Not the uh, Republican that is uh, disgusted by Trump's tweeting. Like, that person doesn't exist. Trump is winning, like, 90 plus percent in every republican poll like no one is republicans love trump no one's gonna vote for bill weld there's no giant surge of people that are like ready to bring dignity back to the oval office like it doesn't fucking matter (laughs) like no one cares you know it's gonna get 
that you know majority that doesn't vote that could vote that's registered to vote to show up graffiti mm. i say that yeah. sanders campaign should be to face a lot of public property yeah we need bombing on every single uh public infrastructure train system not like actual bombs don't get me wrong <laughs> i'm talking about Graffiti really bombing. really good graph so troy was in the news uh obviously for this something made national yeah. headlines right yeah so like what i'm what i'm looking at right here is actually something from the wall street journal but it was also in democracy now so you get the whole spectrum of <laughs> of national news yeah it was because uh ice director uh matthew albans i think that's how you pronounce his last name albans gerbils i don't know uh uh he uh, uh he showed up to troy on thursday it was only announced it was like 36 hours beforehand so like late tuesday i think something like that uh we found out uh because uh a times union local newspaper found out very suddenly and uh we i'll just say we is a, me and a couple other people like try to organize really fast to get people out to the um uh, the rensselaer jail where uh albans was going to speak he was going to hold a, a closed door press conference so basically only if you have they only let people in if they have a press pass i see uh like in the jail and it was about getting local law enforcement or no it wasn't about yeah, so, the driver's license yeah it was about the okay, green light yeah. bill so uh, a little while ago cuomo passed what is called uh, the green light bill which basically it restores it's not even new it's the thing that like restores sanity to from like this pre 9-11 to this pre 9-11 period where people uh can get driver's licenses even if you know uh, despite like some documentation status or immigration status like you just you can have a driver's license the idea is that like we can make sure you can drive yeah we make sure you can drive uh we can but also we can keep track of you like that's you know like people get put in databases through having a driver's license right so it's like i it's a very strange position to have and you can be insured like there are a lot of really good reasons that even undocumented folks should have driver's license from the state's perspective not even from like a leftist perspective yeah just the state it it behooves the state to have people who are undocumented get driver's license. Yeah. It's this one time that President Cuomo has like a... President Cuomo. Jesus Christ. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> Don't even, David. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Give, just, give yeah. just give me a second. Give me a second. Yeah. yeah no, sorry. <laughs> Take I triggered, a deep breath. <laughs> triggered you there, Chris. It's actually also this one time that Governor Cuomo has like a half decent quote. It's actually a pretty baller quote. He was complaining about how like ICE wants like full database access to arrest undocumented people and quote continue their political jihad unquote. Holy <laughs> yeah. shit! That's Cuomo. Yeah, uh-huh. Cuomo, Do I have to love Cuomo, Cuomo said now? that ICE was on a political jihad, which is pretty incredible. Like I, he, he's a piece that? of trash, but I'll give him I'll give him props for that. Who, who wrote that line? Like yeah, that's name? a good question. Yeah. I don't, yeah. yeah. But uh, so this intern in the office. (laughs) But like Albans came to Troy because Rensselaer County is the only uh, county participating in the 287G agreement, which deputizes uh, local sheriff's officers to be ICE agents. And in our case, in most cases, it's used so that like if you get arrested, there's just someone in the jail that gets to check you against the ICE database to see if you're an an immigrant. Yeah, but it, it also more holistically just scares the shit out of everyone that's around you yeah it just instills fear in the 
Yeah. Yeah. And the two, th- two reasons why you should be against it is one, there is, well, there's three reasons. One is that uh, it's the only morally justifiable thing is to be against it. But even if you're not, right, there's a couple of other reasons. One, uh, there's the fiscal argument that like these programs bring money in from the federal government to run 287G, but they never cover all of the expenses. Because if you're arresting a bunch of people and keeping them nearby before you deport them, then like your jails just like explode uh and actually uh, all every georgia jail has like stopped doing this because of cost overruns and and time and a half that sheriffs spend like processing all that shit so there's all there's, it's also it's very expensive and then uh, a third reason is that uh, it can open a new up to lawsuits because a lot of the stuff that you do is guess what fucking unconstitutional right so like you get like so you can also get uh sued out of existence yeah and then there's even another reason that people like stop trusting law enforcement because they're afraid you're gonna get yeah crime rate people are less likely to report crimes yeah yeah so all of new york state has mostly called themselves a sanctuary state uh, except for now rensselaer county so that's why two things are happening one uh, Albans is coming to Rensselaer to sort of grandstand and yell at Cuomo, right, on behalf of the president. The other reason is that do the Department of Homeland Security, in retaliation for this green light bill that allows immigrants to get driver's licenses, it has halted several of the, uh, like, verified traveler programs. Uh, so, New Yorkers can cannot sign up to, like, get, like, TSA pre-check and stuff. Uh, huh. And a bunch of other like stuff that gets you through customs pretty fast. Uh, yeah, so they're they're basically saying until you repeal the screen light bill, we won't let you do all of these things that a lot of people, mostly like rich people, find to be very convenient and useful. Well, and people who travel yeah. for business, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know. which is, which is, but it's like it's a, it's it's kind of genius in that it seems to like really be targeting this like metropolitan cosmopolitan set of people. They're like, this is very frustrating and and hurts me specifically. Right. Um, I don't think it actually um, impacts, like, probably, I, I won't throw out a percentage, but I bet it's a, a plur- at least a solid plurality, if not a majority of people in the state. So, so uh, yeah, so uh, um, Albans is, came to Rensselaer. We had, like, 36 hours to organize something. I, I, I've been incredibly busy this week with work, so I didn't, I can't take much credit for anything that happened but the wall street journal says uh pegged it at 80 people democracy now said dozens but i think like 80 to 100 people is actually pretty accurate out in front of the jail just screaming their heads off uh during this um press conference and like some of us were and well and ice live streams it right because it's propaganda and you could hear on the live stream, like, people chanting and banging on the windows, like, so loud that they had to stop the press conference. People were banging on the windows? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, wi- so it they was were doing really violence. Loud. Yeah, they did violence. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. You should really uh, take a step back, evaluate your tactics, <laughs> ask yourself, are you being divisive? Yeah, right. We're being very are, divisive. Are you? This wasn't a big tent. This is not. You, you know, might be like, alienating people. Yeah. You know, like, maybe I want, uh. Uh, you know the sheriff to vote for bernie sanders or elizabeth warren you know like i should really be you know like opening up a dialogue but yeah it is a um uh it really threw him off it's 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 actually pretty funny to like watch uh russo like try to talk to the audience while like everyone's banging and shouting and he's like he just starts like yelling like an idiot he's just like <laughs> it's a, yeah. it really just sort of like fucked up their whole press conference that rules good yeah. job everybody yeah yeah it was really a textbook 
political organizing. It, it worked really, really well. I was, I was disappointed that I couldn't be more the part of it. I, 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 I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't there. I was just in like a group chat and like we uh, did some, a uh, lot of press work. And remember, there's exactly one anti-ICE presidential candidate in the running. Yeah, fundamentally reform ICE doesn't make, there's no reason to keep it. Yeah. Like even if you're going to reform it to the point that it's unrecognizable as Elizabeth Warren and her supporters have claimed they will do, then what's the point? Score the political points of saying you will abolish ICE. And that is actually, I think, what is almost more important than the material outcome of getting rid of ICE is stating, like, do, are you ideologically opposed to the very idea of ICE? Yeah. And if you are ideologically opposed, then you just abolish it. And may, yeah, because like all of those powers of state, like, get dialed down and move around to different agencies, right? That, that, and it's a proof of concept that you can just get rid of shitty things. You don't have to whittle them down to, <laughs> to the point where they're almost not like, no, it's just we could just get rid of things that suck. Yeah, yeah. Na the National Endowment for the Arts is not the only budget we can zero out. We can zero out all sorts of <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like right. federal programs. You know, you, you can get rid of ICE. You could get rid of uh, the Department of Education. No, you, know, you can get rid of all sorts yeah. of stuff that like are well, not I, good. The Department I mean, of Education is good. That was that was a that was an Alex Jones joke. Okay. He does hate the the NEA though. Yeah, David yeah. hates the National hate, Endowment of yeah. the Arts. The National Endowment of the Arts is a bunch of uh, metropolitan bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking bourgeois, bourgeois so, trash, bourgeois art. So, so I think like all these stances, um, including you know uh, Bernie's uh, stance on gun reform, like really help him in the primary. And I think about it in the general, there's a lot of work to convince our fellow Americans that the idea of like the current immigration and customs enforcement agency is, is like fundamentally evil and like our attack on immigration as a whole is like wrong. There's a lot, I think, of ground that we have to cover uh, as it relates to like average american i think if that. you're shooting for the average american and you're shooting for the non-voter or at least the person who doesn't consistently vote most people don't have an opinion about ice yeah. most people don't have an opinion about immigration because it doesn't actually affect most americans yeah and, most and, americans do not have any like day-to-day -day real life experience with anything regarding immigrants or immigration and, and i think it, just most people don't care and, and in most of my my experience doing like actions on immigration most people when they like come up to you and they're like oh what is this about they're like oh good i'm like okay cool like, yeah. most people are like that and then there's only a couple people that if they don't like it they really let you know that they don't like it yeah. and they're triggered and angry and uh really really sad and those people are like. going to vote for trump anyway well, yeah it's that, not that's, that's true yeah it's very true no i i, I but, think but i guess but i'm I, speaking from like the summer's experience where we were both you know involved in the whole um uh sanctuary city uh debacle and like i went to a very right-wing like house like uh it was like a veterans um you know memorial like hang out <laughs> his whole house was a was a vietnam no, memorial. it was like this big function space but i think it was primarily it was like uh associated with some type of veterans oh, yeah. organization and they it was just like everyone was like foaming at the mouth anti-immigrant it was it was really extreme yeah and it had a lot to do with like why people would go out to it it was in 
um, support of Carmela Mantello's like ban on ever being a sanctuary city. Which yeah. I just wanted to like make a slight pivot and is like, have you guys noticed that the sanctuary word has been thrown around a lot with the Second Amendment lately? Like, oh yeah, there's like, sanctuary cities for guns. For guns, yeah. So Second Amendment quite sanctuary incredible <laughs> is now something that is like becoming very common parlance for people on the right that want to have their local uh, government ignore the laws as it relates to gun control if there's going to be gun control actually it's some sovereign citizenship yeah you know, it, so it's, it's the same thing though it's, it like, is, yeah. it's like quite literally the same thing it's like you know like immigration in customs enforcement's federal policy is like racist and like fucked up and like we should uh, not enforce it and then the same people being like well the second amendment laws that are or the things that are infringing on the second amendment like gun control laws are like nationally like fucked up and we shouldn't enforce it and it's like it's the same argument and yeah, no, uh, but but on on different things and it's funny because like there there is a Venn diagram of people that like exist on both sides of opposing and being for either of those uh groups there's like you know sure. crossover probably bigger a bigger uh, cross crossover than we might expect. Yeah, absolutely. But but yeah, it's just funny because they're calling themselves sanctuary cities and stuff, and they're getting their constitutional sheriffs and stuff to uh, basically be like, no, we're not enforcing this law. Like, so the whole thing that went down in Virginia, where like all these like you know it was like ten thousand, twenty thousand something people came out to um, protest the gun laws. They're all like open carrying in the streets. Like, nobody got shot. It was like, that was essentially the only thing that could be said declaratively in the, in the, in the positive uh, from the experience. But, you know, like, uh, there's a very uh, large and growing movement of people who are, like, serving aspects of the state that are willing to completely ignore other aspects of the state. That, yeah, that's not how you get a civil war at all. <laughs> no, no, it'll be it's fine. Just fucking Everything's gonna proportions be fine. of the population deciding they're not going to follow laws. That's good. Yeah. Should we get into a wildflower, boys? Absolutely. What do you guys think? Are you ready yeah. to talk? All right, we got we got either bees or corals. One's going to be for this episode, and the other's going to be for the bonus. So if you which one do you guys want to do? You got to give us three dollars. <laughs> yep. You got only one dollar. Really. One dollar. Yeah. $1. Yeah. yeah one dollar. But if you want, if you want stickers, you gotta give us five dollars. Yes, yeah. yeah. Because I'll plug giving, the stickers again at the end of the app. But giving you stickers is is emotional labor for us, so you have to give us five dollars. Yeah, I have to yeah. pack the envelope. This yeah. is a real it's all right, real roller coaster ride of emotions. Yeah, um, yeah. So uh, we found out that um, uh, that there's uh, scientists are working on a bee. Yeah, are we doing bees? Yeah, let's okay. do bees. Let's do bees. Bacteria engineered to protect bees from pests and pathogens. So this is uh, scientists at the University of Texas at Austin say that they have developed a new strategy to protect honeybees from a deadly trend known as colony collapse. They want to use genetically engineered strains of bacteria to produce a bee gut health that will um, help them basically protect them from the two major causes of colony collapse. These are varroa mites and deformed wing virus, which sounds... God, can you imagine these poor little bees with deformed wing virus oh, that makes that me so like sad virus Aww. yeah dude so the researchers believe that their method could one day scale up for agricultural use because these engineered bacteria are easy to grow inoculating the bees is straightforward and the engineered bacteria are unlikely to spread beyond bees how do you inoculate a bee 
Well, if it's a bacteria, <laughs> I imagine you could just like fog them with yeah. it, right? Okay. Yeah, maybe. Or maybe yeah. water. We should ask like, the. You get let, let them like soak it up in some honey or something. Yeah, I mean, I we know that the government knows how to use Do all sorts of things. Bio, to yeah, yeah, engineer biomedical engineering to gas whatever population they want. So I'm sure they could do it for bees too. So the the varroa mites and the deformed wing virus, the reason that it, this will be effective for fighting those these two major causes of colony collapse, uh, are because they often come together. The mites feed on the bees and spread the virus, kind of like rats and the plague. And so it's the combination of the mites feeding on the bees that makes them vulnerable to the pathogens in the first place because they're already sick from the mites. Mm. So um, that's why this engineered strain of bacteria is sort of such a like a godsend because it helps to combat both of those at the same time. Excuse me, it's a it's a scientist send. Ooh, good point. <laughs> I, be- wow. I believe in science. Are we an edgy atheist podcast yeah, now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, right. Someone worked very hard to come up with that. God just didn't give it to us. <laughs> um. So yeah, this is pretty exciting. You know, honey, like we I, we do talk a lot about bees on the podcast, always in the form of wildflowers because I think it's fitting. Bees are incredibly important, and I was just telling Chris off mic, like if we converted to 100% carbon emission free renewable fuel resources tomorrow we would still not be here in 100 years if we don't fix these good goddamn bees cuz they are responsible for all of the food that you eat unless yeah. you want to eat live on spirulina for the rest of your natural life yeah you better care about these bees or if you like actually believe that we are capable of making like robot bees which really just seems like a black mirror <laughs> yeah yeah, but both like some like it seems way harder than just like trying to not kill <laughs> all the bees. Yeah, right. You know, like that really just seems like like taking the hard road for a really unforced error. It's just like, no, we're gonna keep killing these bees, and we'll just try to make uh, you know, like literally the only living thing that sci- that science can't like explain how it can fly. that's a myth scientists can't explain how they fly it's just not the standard model because it's very turbulent it's a different type of flow but isn't it also true isn't it also true that uh um we don't know how uh airplanes fly upside down remember seeing that what yeah well i'm pretty sure we know (laughs) i think we know how everything flies i don't think there are many mysteries of flight left are there i think there is the whole uh how does falcorn fly in in a never-ending story fly no one knows (laughs) fictionally that's how i'm sure there is new types of propulsion that humankind has not figured out how to properly uh design or model Well, yeah but i mean there's no existing flying thing that we don't know how it flies like we know how everything that currently flies flies including bees including bees it's just a different model my understanding of the way that bees fly is that they utilize turbulence more than other um, insects. But I do know that science knows how they fly. Because every time that meme gets posted on Reddit, somebody fucking jumps in the comments to be like, well, actually, scientists do know how bees fly. Yeah. So, David, are you still trying to figure out if we know how planes fly upside down or not? Yes, I've seen this before. I know I have. Just because you've seen it doesn't mean it's true. You fucking QAnon, like... There is a related Google search for airplanes flying upside down. That is, uh, do planes fly upside down in Australia? <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. 
That fucking rules. That's that's fantastic. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this lovingly crafted episode of Ironweeds. You can find us on Twitter. Ironweeds Pod. You can find us on Instagram. Ironweeds Pod. You can send us an email at ironweedspod at gmail.com. Support us on Patreon. It's a fun thing to do. All kinds of people are doing it. People are signing up left and right to support us on Patreon. They're all hot. They are the sexiest, most intelligent folks uh, that exist, really. Patreon.com slash Ironweeds. And if you give us $5 a month, we, I, we will send you five Ironweeds podcast stickers. They're very nice stickers. They're beautiful. Yeah. And I just went to the post office to get the stamps. And if you're getting, if you're getting them in the United States, the domestic stamp is a frog. It's frog stamps. Yeah, frog stamps. They're very, they're very adorable. Very, very, very quick story. When I went to go pick up the stamps, I go to the person at the at the post office, right? And I go, go to the counter and um, I ask for a book of stamps and she goes, flags or frogs? And I go, frogs? Like, obviously frogs. <laughs> I was like, flipping out and she's like, oh, yeah, okay. I don't know, understand why everyone is so excited about frogs. And I'm just like, I'm, I just like pick it up and I point to them. I'm like, look at them. They're adorable. And I'm like, of course. And, and then I also go, I get very quiet. And I go, and also maybe people don't like flags. Yeah, and <laughs> and, she, and, she, and she was like, yeah, maybe I don't know, fucking know, and, you know, just uh, but it was a uh, it's a good moment, and I'm glad that frogs are more impo- yeah. more popular than flags. Frogs roll. We yeah. have frogs. Yeah. They're the best. One of our frogs has started trying to mate with the uh, marimo moss that's in the aquarium. Marimo moss is like a, um, I think it's actually an algae, but it's like a, a it forms like a thick carpet. And you can like, you, it comes in little balls or you can like glue it to stuff. So I've glued it to like some wood and some rocks and stuff in the aquarium. You and glue the moss to the wood? Uh-huh. How do you glue moss? A super glue. Because it's it like, like a, a big thick mat. It's not really so you, like. So you glue it like out in, in the air? Yeah, you, you take like it out. put it underwater? Yep, and the super glue uh, becomes inert once it's in water. So it's, it's aquarium safe. Um, wow. Yeah. And the, but this frog thinks that it can mate with the moss and I'll post some pictures <laughs> to the Instagram cause big, I got a lot of pictures same. of this, yeah. this little frog <sighs> trying to fuck the moss. Um, poor guy. Yeah. He, we have a moss sexual frog. It's sad. I never thought I would, I would raise, we I, still I love thought him. I, we raised him right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how this happened, but yeah. we still love him. We just don't approve of his life choices. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so subscribe to our Patreon. <laughs> subscribe to our Patreon for more frog facts. Um, and if you so choose to continue listening, you're about to hear the part two of chapter five, Food of the Conquest of Bread by Peter Kropotkin. It's is, pretty good. Is, is this when he finally describes why bread is food? Yes, this is the theory of <laughs> okay. bread value all right. that you've all been waiting for. Um, it's, it's sort of, it picks up from where we left off last time to talking about, I don't know, why food is important. Why we gotta, why we gotta get that bread. This is basically like the heat, like the crux of Kropotkin's entire argument. Yeah. Is um, that the needs of everybody should be able to be easily fulfilled by everybody such that it's a right that we don't need to like, you know, predate each other. Yeah. Over. It's, you know, it's, it's just more kind of railing against the wage system. Um, I hope that you enjoy it. It was a, pl- it was an absolute pleasure to read. The fewer numbers he goes over uh, in his text, the more I enjoy reading it. And hopefully the more you enjoy listening to it. So to summarize, follow us on social media, give us money on Patreon, and listen to Peter Kapaka. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Peace.
The people of the great towns will be driven by force of circumstances to take possession of all the provisions, beginning with the barest necessaries, and gradually extending communism to other things, in order to satisfy the needs of all the citizens. The sooner it is done, the better. The sooner it is done, the less misery there will be, and the less strife. But upon what basis must society be organized in order that all may share and share alike? This is the question that meets us at the outset. We answer that there are no two ways of it. There is only one way in which communism can be established equitably, only one way which satisfies our instincts of justice and is at the same time practical, namely, the system already adopted by the agrarian communes of Europe. Take, for example, a peasant commune, no matter where, even in France, where the Jacobins have done their best to destroy all communal usage. If the commune possesses woods and copses, then, so long as there is plenty of wood for all, everyone can take as much as he wants, without other lead or hindrance than the public opinion of his neighbors. As to the timber trees, which are always scarce, they have to be carefully apportioned. The same with the communal pasture land. While there is enough to spare, no limit is put to what the cattle of each homestead may consume, nor to the number of beasts grazing upon the pastures. Grazing grounds are not divided, nor is fodder doled out, unless there is scarcity. All the Swiss communes, and many of those in France and Germany too, wherever there is communal pasture land, practice this system. And in the countries of Eastern Europe, where there are great forests and no scarcity of land, you find the peasants felling the trees as they need them, and cultivating as much of the soil as they require, without any thought of limiting each man's share of timber or of land. But the timber will be divided, and the land parceled out, to each household according to its needs, as soon as either becomes scarce, as is already the case in Russia. In a word, the system is this, no stint or limit to what the community possesses in abundance, but equal sharing and dividing of those commodities which are scarce or apt to run short. Of the 350 millions who inhabit Europe, 200 million still follow this system of natural communism. It is a fact worth remarking that the same system prevails in the great towns in the distribution of one commodity at least, which is found in abundance, the water supplied to each house. As long as there is no fear of the supply running short, no water company thinks of checking the consumption of water in each house. Take what you please. But during the great droughts, if there is any fear of supply failing, the water companies know that all they have to do is make known the fact, by means of a short advertisement in the papers, and the citizens will reduce their consumption of water and not let it run to waste. But if water were actually scarce, what would be done? Recourse would be had to a system of rations. Such a measure is so natural, so inherent in common sense, that Paris asked twice to be put on rations during the two sieges which it underwent in 1871. Is it necessary to go into details, to prepare tables showing how the distributions of rations may work, to prove that it is just and equitable, infinitely more just and equitable than the existing state of things? All these tables and details will not serve to convince those of the middle classes, nor, alas, those of the workers tainted with middle-class prejudices, who regard the people as a mob of savages ready to fall upon and devour each other, directly the government ceases to direct affairs.
But those only who have never seen the people resolve and act on their own initiative could doubt for a moment that if the masses were masters of the situation, they would distribute rations to each and all in strictest accordance with justice and equity. If you were to give utterance in any gathering of people to the opinion that delicacies, game and such like, should be reserved for the fastidious palates of aristocratic idlers and black bread given to the sick in the hospitals, you would be hissed. But say at the same gathering, preach at the street corners and in the marketplaces, that the most tempting delicacies ought to be kept for the sick and feeble, especially for the sick. Say that if there were only five brace of partridge in the entire city and only one case of sherry wine, they should go to sick people and convalescents. Say that after the sick come the children. For them, the milk of the cows and the goats should be reserved if there is not enough for all. To the children and the aged, the last piece of meat, and to the strong man, dry bread, if the community be reduced to that extremity. Say, in a word, that if this or that article of consumption runs short and has to be doled out, to those who have the most need, most should be given. Say that, and see if you do not meet with universal agreement. The man who is full-fed does not understand this, but the people do understand, have always understood it, and even the child of luxury, if he is thrown on the street and comes into contact with the masses, even he will learn to understand it. The theorists, for whom the soldier's uniform and the barrack mess table are civilization's last word, would like, no doubt, to start a regime of national kitchens and Spartan broth. They would point out the advantages thereby gained, the economy and fuel and food, if such huge kitchens were established, where everyone could come for their rations of soup and bread and vegetables. We do not question these advantages. We are well aware that important economies have already been achieved in this direction, as, for instance, when the handmill or quern and the baker's oven attached to each house were abandoned. We can see perfectly well that it would be more economical to cook broth for a hundred families at once, instead of lighting a hundred separate fires. We know, besides, that there are a thousand ways of doing up potatoes, but that cooked in one huge pot for a hundred families, they would be just as good. We know, in fact, that variety in cooking being a matter of the seasoning introduced by each cook or housewife, the cooking together of a hundred weight of potatoes would not prevent each cook or housewife from dressing and serving them in any way she pleased. And we know that stock made from meat can be converted into a hundred different soups to suit a hundred different tastes. But though we are quite aware of all these facts, we still maintain that no one has a right to force the housewife to take her potatoes from the communal kitchen ready-cooked if she prefers to cook them herself, in her own pot, on her own fire. And, above all, we should wish each one to be free to take his meals with his family, or with his friends, or even in a restaurant, if so it seemed good to him. Naturally, large public kitchens will spring up to take the place of the restaurants, where people are poisoned nowadays. Already, the Parisian housewife gets the stock for her soup from the butcher and transforms it into whatever soup she likes. And London housekeepers know that they can have a joint roasted, or an apple pie or rhubarb tart baked at the baker's for a trifling sum, thus economizing time and fuel. And when the communal kitchen, the common bakehouse of the future, is established, 
and people can get their food cooked without the risk of being cheated or poisoned, the custom will no doubt become general of going to the communal kitchen for the fundamental parts of the meal, leaving the last touches to be added as individual taste shall suggest. But to make a hard and fast rule of this, to make a duty of taking home our food ready cooked, that would be as repugnant to our modern minds as the idea of the convent or the barrack, morbid ideas born in brains warped by tyranny or superstition. Who will have a right to the food of the commune will assuredly be the first question which we shall have to ask ourselves. Every township will answer for itself, and we are convinced that the answers will all be dictated by the sentiment of justice. Until labor is reorganized, as long as the disturbed period lasts, and while it is impossible to distinguish between inveterate idlers and genuine workers thrown out of work, the available food ought to be shared by all, without exception. Those who have been enemies to the new order will hasten of their own accord to rid the commune of their presence. But it seems to us that the masses of the people, which have always been magnanimous and have nothing of vindictiveness in their disposition, will be ready to share their bread with all who remain with them, conquered and conquerors alike. It will be no loss to the revolution to be inspired by such an idea, and, when work is set a-going again, the antagonists of yesterday will stand side by side in the same workshops. A society where work is free will have nothing to fear from idlers. But provisions will run short in a month, our critics at once exclaim. So much the better, say we. It will prove that for the first time on record the people have had enough to eat. As to the question of obtaining fresh supplies, we shall discuss the means in our next chapter. By what means could a city in a state of revolution be supplied with food? We shall answer this question, but it is obvious that the means resorted to will depend on the character of the revolution in the provinces and in neighboring countries. If the entire nation, or better still, if all Europe should accomplish the social revolution simultaneously and start with thoroughgoing communism, our procedure would be simplified. But if only a few communities in Europe make the attempt, other means will have to be chosen. The circumstances will dictate the measures. We are thus led, before we proceed further, to glance at the state of Europe and, without pretending to prophecy, we may try to foresee what course the revolution will take, or at least what will be its essential features. Certainly it would be very desirable that all Europe should rise at once, that expropriation should be general, and that communistic principles should inspire all in sundry. Such a universal rising would do much to simplify the task of our century. But all the signs lead us to believe that it will not take place. That the revolution will embrace Europe we do not doubt. If one of the four great continental capitals, Paris, Vienna, Brussels, or Berlin, rises in revolution and overturns its government, it is almost certain that the three others will follow its example within a few weeks' time. It is, moreover, highly probable that the peninsulas and even London and St. Petersburg would not be long in following suit. But whether the revolution would everywhere exhibit the same characteristics is doubtful. Though it is more than probable that expropriation will be everywhere carried into effect on a larger or smaller scale, and that this policy carried out by any one of the great nations of Europe will influence all the rest, yet the beginnings of the revolution will exhibit great local differences, 
and its course will vary in different countries. In 1789-93, the French peasantry took four years to finally rid themselves of the redemption of feudal rights and the bourgeois to overthrow royalty. Let us keep that in mind, therefore, and be prepared to see the revolution develop itself somewhat gradually. Let us not be disheartened if here and there its step should move less rapidly. Whether it would take an avowedly socialist character in all European nations, at any rate at the beginning, is doubtful. Germany, be it remembered, is still realizing its dream of a united empire. Its advanced parties see visions of a Jacobin republic like that of 1848, and of the organization of labor according to Louis Blanc, while the French people, on the other hand, want above all things a free commune, whether it be a communist commune or not. There is every reason to believe that, when the coming revolution takes place, Germany will go further than France went in 1793. The 18th century revolution in France was an advance on the English revolution of the 17th, abolishing as it did at one stroke the power of the throne and the landed aristocracy, whose influence still survives in England. But, if Germany goes further and does greater things than France did in 1793, there can be no doubt that the ideas which will foster the birth of her revolution will be those of 1848, as the ideas which will inspire the revolution in Russia will be those of 1789, modified somewhat by the intellectual movements of our own century. Without, however, attaching to these forecasts a greater importance than they merit, we may safely conclude this much. The revolution will take a different character in each of the different European nations. The point attained in the socialization of wealth will not be everywhere the same. Will it therefore be necessary, as is sometimes suggested, that the nations in the vanguard of the movement should adapt their pace to those who lag behind? Must we wait till the communist revolution is ripe in all civilized countries? Clearly not. Even if it were a thing to be desired, it is not possible. History does not wait for the laggards. Besides, we do not believe that in any one country the revolution will be accomplished at a stroke, in the twinkling of an eye, as some socialists dream. It is highly probable that if one of the five or six large towns of France, Paris, Lyon, Marseille, Lille, Saint-Étienne, Bordeaux, were to proclaim the commune, the others would follow its example, and that many smaller towns would do the same. Probably also various mining districts and industrial centers would hasten to rid themselves of owners and masters and form themselves into free groups. But many country places have not advanced to that point. Side by side with the revolutionized communes, such places would remain in an expectant attitude and would go on living on the individualist system. Undisturbed by visits of the bailiff or the tax collector, the peasants would not be hostile to the revolutionaries, and thus, while profiting by the new state of affairs, they would defer the settlement of accounts with the local exploiters. But with that practical enthusiasm which always characterizes agrarian uprisings, witness the passionate toil of 1792, they would throw themselves into the task of cultivating the land, which, freed from taxes and mortgages, would become so much dearer to them. As to abroad, revolution would break out everywhere, but revolution under diverse aspects. In one country, state socialism. In another, federation. Everywhere more or less socialism, 
not conforming to any particular rule. Let us now return to our city in revolt and consider how its citizens can provide foodstuffs for themselves. How are the necessary provisions to be obtained if the nation as a whole has not accepted communism? This is the question to be solved. Take, for example, one of the large French towns. Take the capital itself, for that matter. Paris consumes every year thousands of tons of grain, 350,000 head of oxen, 200,000 calves, 300,000 swine, and more than two millions of sheep, besides great quantities of game. This huge city devours, besides, 18 million pounds of butter, 172 million eggs, and other produce in like proportion. It imports flour and grain from the United States and from Russia, Hungary, Italy, Egypt, and the Indies, livestock from Germany, Italy, Spain, and even Romania and Russia. And as for groceries, there is not a country in the world that it does not lay under contribution. Now, let us see how Paris or any other great town could be revittled by homegrown produce, supplies of which could be readily and willingly sent in from the provinces. To those who put their trust in authority, the question will appear quite simple. They would begin by establishing a strong centralized government, furnished with all the machinery of coercion, the police, the army, the guillotine. This government would draw up a statement of all the produce contained in France. It would divide the country into districts of supply, and then command that a prescribed quantity of some particular foodstuff be sent to such a place on such a day and delivered at such a station, to be there received on a given day by a specified official and stored in particular warehouses. Now, we declare with the fullest conviction not merely that such a solution is undesirable, but that it never could by any possibility be put into practice. It is wildly utopian. Pen in hand, one may dream such a dream in the study, but in contact with reality it comes to nothing. For, like all such theories, it leaves out of account the spirit of independence that is in man. The attempt would lead to a universal uprising, to three or four Vendées, to the villages rising against the towns, all the country up in arms, defying the city for its arrogance in attempting to impose such a system upon the country. We have already had too much of Jacobin utopias. Let us see if some other form of organization will meet the case. In 1793, the provinces starved the large towns and killed the revolution. And yet, it is a known fact that the production of grain in France during 1792-93 to had not diminished. Indeed, the evidence goes to show that it had increased. But after having taken possession of the manorial lands, after having reaped a harvest from them, the peasants would not part with their grain for paper money. They withheld their produce, waiting for a rise in the price or the introduction of gold. The most rigorous measures of the National Convention were without avail, and even the fear of death failed to break up the ring or force its members to sell their corn. For it is a matter of history that the commissaries of the Convention did not scruple to guillotine those who withheld their grain from the market and pitilessly executed those who speculated in foodstuffs. All the same, the corn was not forthcoming and the townsfolk suffered from famine. But what was offered to the husbandman in exchange for his hard toil? Asignas, scraps of paper decreasing in value every day, promises of payment which could not be kept, 
A 40-pound note would not purchase a pair of boots, and the peasant, very naturally, was not anxious to barter a year's toil for a piece of paper with which he could not even buy a shirt. As long as worthless paper money, whether called assignats or labor notes, is offered to the peasant producer, it will always be the same. The country will withhold its produce, and the towns will suffer want, even if the recalcitrant peasants are guillotined as before. We must offer to the peasant in exchange for his toil not worthless paper money, but the manufactured articles of which he stands in immediate need. He lacks the proper implements to till the land, clothes to protect him properly from the inclemencies of the weather, lamps and oil to replace his miserable rushlight or tallow dip, spades, rakes, plows. All these things, under present conditions, the peasant is forced to do without, not because he does not feel the need of them, but because, in his life of struggle and privation, a thousand useful things are beyond his reach, because he has no money to buy them. Let the town apply itself, without loss of time, to manufacturing all that the peasant needs, instead of fashioning gewgaws for the wives of rich citizens. Let the sewing machines of Paris be set to work on clothes for the country folk, workaday clothes and clothes for Sunday, too, instead of costly evening dresses. Let the factories and foundries turn out agricultural implements, spades, rakes, and such like, instead of waiting till the English send them to France in exchange for French wines. Let the town send no more inspectors to the villages wearing red, blue, or rainbow-colored scarves to convey to the peasant orders to take his produce to this place or that, but let them send friendly embassies to the country folk and bid them in brotherly fashion, bring us your produce and take from our stores and shops all the manufactured articles you please. Then provisions would pour in on every side. The peasant would only withhold what he needed for his own use and would send the rest into the cities, feeling for the first time in the course of history that these toiling townsfolk were his comrades, his brethren, and not his exploiters. We shall be told, perhaps, that this would necessitate a complete transformation of industry. Well, yes, that is true of certain departments. But there are other branches which could be rapidly modified in such a way as to furnish the peasant with clothes, watches, furniture, and the simple implements for which the towns make him pay such exorbitant prices at the present time. Weavers, tailors, shoemakers, tinsmiths, cabinet makers, and many other trades and crafts could easily direct their energies to the manufacture of useful and necessary articles, and abstain from producing mere luxuries. All that is needed is that the public mind should be thoroughly convinced of the necessity of this transformation, and should come to look upon it as an act of justice and progress, and that it should no longer allow itself to be cheated by that dream so dear to the theorists, the dream of a revolution which confines itself to taking possession of the profits of industry and leaves production and commerce just as they are now. This, then, is our view of the whole question. Cheat the peasant no longer with scraps of paper, be the sums inscribed upon them ever so large, but offer him in exchange for his produce the very things of which he, the tiller of the soil, stands in need. Then the fruits of the land will be poured into the towns. If this is not done, there will be famine in our cities, and reaction and despair will follow in its train. 
All the great towns, we have said, buy their grain, their flour, and their meat, not only from the provinces, but also from abroad. Foreign countries send Paris spices, fish, and various dainties, besides immense quantities of corn and meat. But when the revolution comes, we must depend on foreign countries as little as possible. If Russian wheat, Italian or Indian rice, and Spanish or Hungarian wines abound in the markets of Western Europe, it is not that the countries which export them have a superabundance, or that such a produce grows there of itself, like the dandelion in the meadows. In Russia, for instance, the peasant works 16 hours a day and half starves from three to six months every year in order to export the grain with which he pays the landlord in the state. Today, the police appear in the Russian village as soon as the harvest is gathered in and sells the peasant's last horse and last cow for arrears of taxes and rent due to the landlord, unless the victim immolates himself of his own accord by selling the grain to the exporters. Usually, rather than part with his livestock at a disadvantage, he keeps only a nine-month supply of grain and sells the rest. Then, in order to sustain life until the next harvest, he mixes birch bark and tears with his flour for three months if it has been a good year, and six if it has been bad, while in London they are eating biscuits made of his wheat. But as soon as the revolution comes, the Russian peasant will keep bread enough for himself and his children. The Italian and Hungarian peasants will do the same, and the Hindu, let us hope, will profit by these good examples, and the farmers of America will hardly be able to cover all the deficit in grain which Europe will experience. So it will not do to count on their contributions of wheat and maize satisfying all the wants. Since all our middle-class civilization is based on the exploitation of inferior races and countries with less advanced industrial systems, the revolution will confer a boon at the very outset by menacing that civilization and allowing the so-called inferior races to free themselves. But this great benefit will manifest itself by a steady and marked diminution of the food supplies pouring into the great cities of Western Europe. It is difficult to predict the course of affairs in the provinces. On the one hand, the slave of the soil will take advantage of the revolution to straighten his bowed back. Instead of working 14 or 15 hours a day, as he does at present, he will be at liberty to work only half that time, which of course would have the effect of decreasing the production of the principal articles of consumption, grain and meat. But, on the other hand, there will be an increase of production as soon as the peasant realizes that he is no longer forced to support the idle rich by his toil. New tracts of land will be cleared, new and improved machines set a-going. Never was the land so energetically cultivated as in 1792, when the peasant had taken back from the landlord the soil which he had coveted so long, Michelet tells us, speaking of the Great Revolution. Before long, intensive culture would be within the reach of all. Improved machinery, chemical manures, and all such matters would be common property. But everything tends to indicate that at the outset there would be a falling off in agricultural products, in France as elsewhere. In any case, it would be wisest to count upon such a falling off of contributions from the provinces as well as from abroad. And how is this falling off to be made good? Why, in heaven's name, by setting to work ourselves. No need to rack our brains for far-fetched panaceas when the remedy lies close at hand. 
The large towns must undertake to till the soil, like the country districts. We must return to what biology calls the integration of functions. After the division of labor, the taking up of it as a whole. This is the course followed throughout nature. Besides, philosophy apart, the force of circumstances would bring about this result. Let Paris see that at the end of eight months it will be running short of bread, and Paris will set to work to grow wheat. What about land? It will not be wanting, for it is round the great towns, and round Paris especially, that the parks and pleasure grounds of the landed gentry are to be found. These thousands of acres only await the skilled labor of the husbandman to surround Paris with fields infinitely more fertile and productive than the steppes of southern Russia, where the soil is dried up by the sun. Nor will labor be lacking. To what should the two million citizens of Paris turn their attention when they would be no longer catering for the luxurious fads and amusements of Russian princes, Romanian grandees, and wives of Berlin financiers? With all the mechanical inventions of the century, with all the intelligence and technical skill of the worker accustomed to deal with complicated machinery, with inventors, chemists, professors of botany, practical botanists like the market gardeners of Genvilliers, with all the plant that they could use for multiplying and improving machinery, and finally, with the organizing spirit of the Parisian people, their pluck and energy. With all these at its command, the agriculture of the anarchist commune of Paris would be a very different thing from the rude husbandry of the Ardennes. Steam, electricity, the heat of the sun, and the breath of the wind will ere long be pressed into service. The steam harrow and the steam plow will quickly do the rough work of preparation, and the soil, thus cleaned and enriched, will only need the intelligent care of man, and of woman even more than man, to be clothed with luxuriant vegetation, not once, but three or four times in the year. Thus, learning the art of horticulture from experts, and trying experiments in different methods on small patches of soil reserved for the purpose, vying with each other to obtain the best returns, finding in physical exercise, without exhaustion or overwork, the health and strength which so often flags in cities. Men, women, and children will gladly turn to the labor of the fields, when it is no longer a slavish drudgery, but has become pleasure, a festival, a renewal of health and joy. There are no barren lands. The earth is worth what man is worth. That is the last word of modern agriculture. Ask of the earth, and she will give you bread, provided that you ask right. A district, though it were as small as the departments of the Seine and the Seine at Oise, and with so great a city as Paris to feed, would be practically sufficient to grow upon it all the food supplies, which otherwise might fail to reach it. The combination of agriculture and industry the husbandman and the mechanic in the same individual. This is what anarchist communism will inevitably lead us to, if it starts fair with expropriation. Let the revolution only get so far, and famine is not the enemy it will have to fear. No, the danger which will menace it lies in timidity, prejudice, and half-measures. The danger is where Danton saw it when he cried to France, Dare, dare, and yet again, Dare. The bold thought first, and the bold deed will not fail to follow.